Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and it's good to be back with you for the second episode since my uh, uh, quote-unquote retirement. And I just want to thank everybody for all their well wishes after that first episode. And I know I spent a lot of time in that first episode on show notes, so I'm going to try to minimize that going forward. But I did want to say uh, thank you to everyone that donated to the Pre-Wrath Film Project at the website prewrathmovie.com. We almost hit $3,000 in our first week, which is more than enough to get started with some of the first uh, interviews and, and all that. Alan and I have a meeting this week. Uh, trying to finalize the details of uh, of that moving forward. So everything is underway. If you want to check that out, prewrathmovie.com. So the format I outlined last week for this podcast was mostly the first half being a talk about random issues, different things that I've been thinking about, or uh, they may or may not pertain to Bible prophecy. The second part is going to be strictly Bible prophecy. In this case, we're going to be talking a lot about 2 Thessalonians 2. But for this first part, I wanted to talk about a book I've been reading, which is the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is this massive, uh, and I'm listening to it in an audiobook, so it's like 52 hours. It's one of, it's just a huge book, but it's an interesting book for several reasons. It's about obviously Germany in World War II, the rise of Hitler, the war, and all the things that went on with that. The reason it's it's interesting, besides it's it being an extremely well written book and uh, from a person that was there in the midst of it, is is because it was one of the first times that a, a regime like that just fell out of nowhere and then left this treasure trove of just all their information, all the their paperwork, all the truth behind the lies was there uh, for the taking right after World War II. I actually was interested in the rise of Hitler and some things like that, but some other interesting things came out of it, especially I'm going to kind of dovetail this into Hong Kong and what's going on, just because there's a thing that I've been thinking about about that. But with regard to the rise of Hitler, the things that stuck out to me about this were, number one, that Hitler was really nothing too special with his rise to power. I, I was surprised about how just purely political it was and practical it was. Like, for example, there were all these kind of competing parties at that time, the, the sort of republic government that came out of World War I. Nobody really liked it. It was, uh, uh, you know, Germany was under all these sanctions from the, the Versailles uh, Treaty and all this stuff. So there was a lot of uh, discontent in the world, and there were a lot of parties uh, angry about this thing or angry about that thing. But one of the things that really made Hitler's party, the National Socialist Party, uh, stand out from the others were just some practical things. He was really good at um, what I might call in my band days a street team. You know, he basically got flyers around and was really good at organizing those kinds of things. Things like he, he talks about like, you know, none of these others had like a flag. You know, he thought if I could design a flag, then... That would be like, what, you know, these other groups don't have that. That'll make my party even more awesome, you know? So it was just this real simple kind of marketing stuff at first. You know, we think of Hitler having this, you know, this oratory uh, ability. And, and that was true to a certain extent. It was certainly a, a thing that he had. But it wasn't like it was a mesmerizing thing that people just followed him blindly. In fact, he never could get a majority on anything to, and he did ultimately. I mean, he, he tried a coup at first, but it, it failed miserably. And he went to jail and he wrote Mein Kampf and whatever. But after that, he, he decided to basically 
do the to gain power in a political way and that meant you know and he was really good that whole sort of party was good at sort of campaigning they were good like they were the first to really use like recordings and they would go around in cars with like you know recordings and bullhorns and stuff they really used technology to do that but even with all that sort of practical stuff their message just was not connecting with people and at a time when it was more or less easy to connect with people if you just were saying what they wanted to hear the national socialist party just wasn't that attractive and they never could get a majority uh until they just started straight up lying and cheating so at first it was just these small kind of campaign-ish lies you know there's going to be a chicken in every pot and everybody's going to have a job and um all these things that people just wanted to hear if you were in this group he'd say oh i love that group you know just basically typical uh typical lies that politicians say but it was just an interesting shift in that he realized he's just got to start lying to people and the lies were in, in my reading of this became like a centerpiece of the entire war early on and they're the kind of lies like the the false flag stuff like the burning of the reichstag so the reichstag was the you know their version of parliament or or capitol hill or whatever and um this was a way for him to do a number of things he did he didn't like uh, the way it was running but he needed to get rid of a lot of political em- enemies and he needed to blame uh in this case that was the social or the the communists i believe it was that he blamed it on in retrospect it's absolutely clear that they engineered the burning of the Reichstag. It's a false flag terrorist event, which they blamed on their political enemies. So that kind of bold lie became the norm for them. And they they would just publish, especially when the propaganda got involved. And it was so interesting how much he just lied his way to conquest, at least at the beginning part. So he would, Germany, their, their international borders were diminished as a part of the Versailles Treaty, and Hitler would just take over little pieces here and there, like the Rhineland, and then, as I said, Czechoslovakia became a little bit more of a, of a deal. But he just kept telling, now, England and, and, and France and everything, they had just come off the worst thing anybody could ever imagine, World War One. Nobody wanted to get into a war. They put all these treaties on Germany, who started the war, and they were just like, you know, please don't cause another war. And Germany just appe- just totally appeased their, them and, and played to this fear saying, oh, look, hey, look, we're just getting these these guys. This The, the Rhineland uh, is just taking that back. We have no t- territorial conquest. We don't want to start a war. There's nothing in the world we, we want more than that or don't want more than that. And this is, of course, uh, completely opposite to Hitler's own book. You can never say that they didn't know what Hitler was going to do because he mapped the whole conquest out, everything in his book, but he would just tell people when they asked, oh, look, hey, I don't want any more land. And then when it came to get some more land from Czechoslovakia, it was all, uh, well, you know, we have to, there's a bunch of Germans in Czechoslovakia and they're getting terrorized. So they'd publish stuff in the paper about how Germans are getting terrorized and, you know, they just gotta do it, you know? And they similar to that, they, they would have these, times when they would they would burn all these uh, shops of Jews and everything else and just just terrorize everybody thousands and thousands of people in a single night and everybody getting taken to prison and that was kind of earlier on in this but they they published in the papers how it was a spontaneous thing from the citizens the citizens were just so mad at the the Jews oppression of their whatever you know when when in their papers now show it was a completely orchestrated event they hired the people to do it they told them exactly what to do and when what not to do and of course i could talk for a while about propaganda entire books have been written on the subject of propaganda 
I, I guess what I'm trying to say here, the thing that struck me was just that the boldness of these lies got so much done. I think that bold lies catch me off guard sometimes. And especially when they come from institutions that you, they're, they're more powerful when they come from bigger institutions, whether that's the government saying something or an institution that is supposed to represent the truth to some extent. Uh, these, these big news agencies, CNN, Fox News, the New York Times, you know, especially in this climate where they at all costs, they're, they're pushing their political agendas. And especially with, the left, and again, this is not necessarily partisan, but it does seem that they are more willing to just straight up knowingly lie about something, and it's directly influencing opinions and making this other side, of course, turning their side that believes their lies, because there's always going to be a certain segment of the population that's going to just believe everything that the institutions say, because they're ultimately powerless against the propaganda. The, the, the heart of propaganda is that you just don't expect the institution to lie. And so you, you believe it. And there's always going to be a certain segment that believes that. And the people that believe that are being turned into just raging monsters. Anyway, sort of moving on from that aspect and talking about another parallel from this book that I'm seeing with the modern times. And it has to do with the Hong Kong situation. So uh, I'm really interested in, in the Hong Kong protests and, and everything that's going on there because I think it's just this amazing thing in one sense. They're fighting something that doesn't sound very... Uh, interesting, an extradition treaty, basically, which is the, the right not to be taken away with no trial and to be executed in the concentration camps. Because right now, China can do that to its own citizens, but because of various deals with Hong Kong, they won't be able to do it to Hong Kong for another, uh, whatever it is, two, three decades or whatever. China wants to go ahead and start at least the extradition treaty where they get to take them away and, you know, take out their organs and, and kill them for no good reason, uh, especially, though, if they are uh, in any possible way, uh, you know, against the state, uh, vocal or otherwise. So they don't want that to happen. And so they're trying to appeal to everybody and uh, and say, hey, look, please be on our side. You know, please uh, fight with us. The support that we could have for them uh, would really mean a lot to them, not just in terms of moral support, but also in terms of policy and how this whole thing happens. If the world was galvanized in support for Hong Kong, who knows what could happen in China? I mean, we're really missing an opportunity here. If we're worried about China, this is this is the problem number one in China because they cannot have this thing spread because it, the, the, the one thing that you got to be scared about in a, in a place like China is revolution. But nevertheless, my... Um, my main point about this, though, is about the, this this footage that has come out of China of like a drone footage of the concentration camps. Now, we've always heard about these work camps and millions and millions of people are there. Part of what this showed is just like all these people. What is it like 100 people, several hundred people being loaded into train cars, blindfolded, apparently to be executed, probably to have their organs harvested. Uh, but there's all kinds of stories of people. I mean, this is what happens at the at the camps, you know. Uh, you get your organs taken and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of testimony from people that have come out of China and made it out of China about what's happening there. But I guess I would have hoped that this footage would mean more to people and that it would be on every news channel and it would be the story of the day because that's what should have happened in Germany 
with the concentration camps. There should, the, the intel about those concentration camps should have been on every newspaper uh, in World War II, and who knows what would have happened. It would have galvanized support from the entire world against Germany if they would have just known, because you can't tell me that the officials, which the official story is that we, we won the war, we liberated Germany, and lo and behold, there, there are concentration camps? Whoa, whoa, who would have guessed? As if there weren't spies and, and people coming out of Germany and everybody knew about the concentration camps, but yet the world didn't know about it until after it was done. What in the world is that? I mean, can we, is that just not, what, why, I, I don't understand that. And I, and I feel like that's what's going, if that's what's going on here in China, certainly the American uh, government knows about it because we've got who knows how many satellites pointed at China uh, and know all about these uh, concentration camps and know exactly where those trains go and where all the bodies are buried and everything else. So I'll wrap this up, but my main thing is that I just... I wish we were all a little bit more supportive of, of Hong Kong, at least in, in the in the news media and everything else. So let's move on to the actual uh, substance of this podcast, which we're going to be talking a lot about 2 Thessalonians 2 in the Bible. But the overarching theme, the point I want to get across, is to demonstrate this complete lack of consensus among pre-tribulationalists with regard to explaining how the pre-trib rapture works according to the Bible. Don't get me wrong, they all say the same thing and can completely agree in the same voice and sometimes in the same words about what the pre-trib rapture is. They'll tell you that imminence means that there are no events that must occur before the rapture or when the rapture occurs in relationship to the seven-year period. They'll tell you the pre-trib rapture verbatim, but when it comes to say, okay, well, can you explain Second Thessalonians to me, or Matthew twenty-four, or 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 exactly how does how does the Bible teach pre-tribulationalism? All these different kind of details. That's when you start to see a lack of consensus on a level that I don't think anybody will believe, and that I haven't believed until I really started charting this out, taking your your famous pre-tribbers out there and saying, okay, what do you believe? Let's take 2 Thessalonians 2 like we're going to today, but you can do this with uh, anything as we're going to do in the film. Okay, let's say in 2 Thessalonians 2, as we're going to see, there's probably about 10 different things that a pre-tribber has to deal with in 2 Thessalonians 2 to make whatever their theory is come true. And of those 10 different things, I bet, of the, and I've still am going through commentaries, and and I've yet to find anybody that's even close to the same ex- explanation. And these aren't like, oh well, it's okay to explain things a little bit differently. You know, it's a complicated subject or whatever. No, I'm talking about a massive fundamental difference in, that would change literally everything about the passage. Like it, it's almost as if each pre-trib commentary is like coming up with a new theory. You know, each one has discovered a new way to explain this problem because, man, it is a problem. Second Thessalonians two is pre-trib kryptonite, and it, and so everyone needs to have some kind of new theory to get around it because they recognize the problems with the old theory. But the beautiful thing about Second Thessalonians two and these ten things that they need to explain about it is that it's kind of like. You know, I can't even think of a puzzle. I'm sure there's a puzzle like this where, like, if you push one piece in, it'll make another piece go out. Okay, now it's not uniform because you—it's like a Rubik's Cube, I guess. Because, you know, if you're if you're not doing it right, you're going to make the other side uh, the wrong colors. 
Uh, so you can come up with a new theory over here, but if you're not explaining, well, now you've created a contradiction with the first two verses. And what, I've, what I'm finding a lot of times is they'll come up with their theory about one thing and just not even explain the contradiction. And then it, it, it pushes the, the cart down the road because now another commentator has to, has to point that out and say, okay, that's a nice theory, but you forgot about uh, this thing over here. How are you going to explain that? And that has to go back down. Another guy has to explain, oh yeah, that was bad theory. What's fascinating to me is that the pre-trib rapture is the only doctrine widely held by Christians that I know of that becomes, that the arguments for it become obsolete uh, on a regular basis. This is, this is what we are seeing in this scholarship is that they're just changing the way that they have been teaching uh, the pre-trib rapture because the old views, they now admit, okay, that's a wrong view. All right, so let's get into 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm just going to read it and we're going to talk about all these points. Uh, but first, I do want to apologize. I know that I, I do definitely shoot from the hip with uh, some of these podcasts. These podcasts are basically come in two forms. One where I'm... I'm uh, speaking from a script and my thoughts are perfectly ordered and, uh, you know, all killer, no filler. And then there's this type of podcast where I very rarely have any notes and am just uh, uh, using the, the shotgun approach. Uh, so, so I do apologize for that. This is one of those. All right. So 2 Thessalonians 2 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, from the pre-wrath perspective, there's really not a lot of new information here. Uh, this is the same events and the same order of events that was told to happen in Matthew 24. It's very, very simple. Uh, it just means what it says if you hold to the pre-wrath position. But if you hold to the pre-trib position, we've got a number of problems here because what Paul is saying here is that two events need to happen before the day of the Lord. Technically, I'll, I'll show you in a minute. He's saying before the rapture, it doesn't really matter. We're going to argue the point that the day that Paul sees the day of the Lord as the rapture, it's the beginning of the rapture, the first event of the day of the Lord. They're back-to-back -back events. But the point is, it doesn't really matter. Either way, pre-tribbers have a problem no matter what they do with the, the what they call the rapture and what they call the day of the Lord. Uh, because you've got two events before the day of the Lord. Now, pre-tribbers view the day of the Lord as the entirety of of the 70th week of Daniel. Now, I really don't want to have to get into all this right now. In the film, before I even get to 2 Thessalonians 2, we will have gone through the whole thing about what the day of the Lord is and the timing of the, and the weird thing about, I guess we have to do it in order for anybody to follow what I'm doing here because of this thing that has happened uh, with this word tribulation and people just have a hard time understanding it. So, Pre-tribbers, mid-trib, and post-tribbers really all call the seven-year period the tribulation period for, for really no good reason. There's no biblical reason to call the entire seven-year period the tribulation period. Even their scholars, the people that know why we call the Great Tribulation the Great Tribulation, whether they're post-tribbers or pre-tribbers, they will admit that, yes, it's not technically the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is an event that begins after the midpoint after the abomination of desolation. That's the great tribulation. Jesus calls it uh, the tribulation that will be unlike any uh, from the beginning of 
time or ever shall be. And then in the book of Revelation, John, in referring to that tribulation, calls it the great tribulation, megas thelipsis. Um, so there's a very good reason to call that last half of that seven-year period the great tribulation, but there's no good reason to call the entire seven-year period the tribulation. It's just something that's kind of uh, grown up over the last 100 years or so. And in my opinion, it's really caused more trouble in this debate than really any other thing. But the important point here is that what the Great Tribulation is, this thing that starts after the Antichrist declares himself to be God in the temple, uh, this is basically a persecution. That's what it explicitly is. That's what the, the Great Tribulation is all about. It is a tribulation, not because of anything else, but because of the magnitude and the quantity of Christians killed. Jesus talks at great length about the nature of this persecution. It, it's so intense, and I don't know if, if the Antichrist just decrees after he declares himself to be God and, and requires worship. He says, everybody go kill Christians at this point, or if it's spontaneous on their part, whatever the thing is that uh, we're told things like uh, brother is going to betray brother, regardless of whatever you think they are. They are Christians. We're told they are being killed because of Jesus's namesake. Okay, so these are Christians, and of course, they're, that's reiterated in uh, in the the fifth seal martyrs who say uh, they're they've been killed for the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's again reiterated with that multitude that we see in heaven that came out of what that came out of the great tribulation. Um, so we know these are Christians that are being killed. This is a great persecution of Christians. The point here is that the Great Tribulation, this thing that starts after the midpoint, this killing of Christians, is not the wrath of God. The day of the Lord is what we call the wrath of God. It is uh, a lot of things, but it is chiefly the day in which God begins to judge the wicked. This time that we're talking about, the killing of Christians, is essentially the opposite of God judging the wicked. It is the Antichrist having the authority to kill Christians, basically the exact polar opposite of God judging the wicked. In fact, you can get a sense that though the world is not perfect during this time, if the wicked choose to get the mark, uh, we see glimpses that they're living relatively okay. As long as you're not part of this group that is hated and being killed and that's living underground, if you go along to get along here, you're relatively doing good. We see in one sense when the two witnesses are killed, they're so happy that they give gifts to each other. They're partying in the streets. The wicked are not being judged at this point. The wicked start to know they are about to be judged when they see this sun and moon and star signs, which Joel says, you're going to see this event when you know the day of the Lord is about to come. In fact, it's one of the best proof texts for pre-wrath, this idea that before the day of the Lord, Joel says, you will see, and he goes through the celestial disturbances, the the, the sun becoming as sackcloth and the moon as blood, essentially the, the lights in the sky dimming right before what happens in Matthew 24, 31. And we see this this burst of light in the return of Christ, the parousia of Christ, where he gathers together his elect, which is unambiguously the rapture. It's the most rapture thing that you've ever seen in Matthew 24, 31. But for some reason, well, pe people have to deny it. Well, that is to say, pre-tribbers have to deny that it's the most rapture passage in the world is not the rapture because, partly because they believe the entire seven-year period is the tribulation, partly because they don't understand what the day of the Lord is. And I'm kind of getting off track because I really wanted to, to describe very quickly uh, what the day of the Lord is is uh, in the New Testament because it really helps to understand our Second Thessalonians passage. So I really encourage everybody to do a Bible study about the day of the Lord in the New Testament. Uh, there's lots of phrases that you'll see in the New Testament like uh, the day of the Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Christ. 
uh, that day, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, uh, the day of God, that great day, the great day, the day, they're all essentially referring to the same thing and are explained the same way. For example, just some examples of the things that are contextually supposed to happen on the, this day, Christians are saved, Christians receive rewards, it's the second coming unambiguously, Christians need to be prepared for the day, it's the second coming, it's the Christian's last day of work, um, again, it's reiterated the last day of work. Christians get rewarded, Christians rewarded. But there's a seeming contradiction that oftentimes in the same verse, it speaks of the same day as bad for everybody else. It's as if uh, it's good for us, bad for them. Uh, but for those who are unsaved, it will be a day of darkness, a day of dread. And, and at the same time, it's telling Christians to look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Look forward to the day of the Lord. But for everybody else, it will come upon them as a thief in the night. It will, come, it will be really bad for them, really good for us. This dual nature of the day of the Lord is explained in the back-to-back -back nature of the day of the Lord, which is chiefly understood uh, through Matthew 24 and 25, the ideas of these parables that Jesus gives, like um, he says that the very same day makes this express point that the day that Noah was, or rather that Lot was taken out of Sodom, then the wrath of God hit uh, Sodom. In the same uh, in the same place, he says the day that Noah entered the ark, that's when the floods uh, came. And, it, and he, he makes that express point. It was the same day. It was a back-to-back -back day, which of course makes perfect sense logically in that uh, Christians are taken out of the way and then the wrath of God via the rapture and then the wrath of God begins. This one point, understanding what the day of the Lord is in the New Testament, is one of these things that are just eye-opening because you start to see it everywhere. It's, it's basically all throughout the New Testament and you begin to understand things and just regular theology things better than you did before. Uh, it's a very helpful doctrine that's right there uh, in front of uh, your face. And so if you understand that, that essentially the rapture is the first event in the day of the Lord, and that the day of the Lord doesn't begin according to Joel uh, and according to Matthew 24 uh, and according to Revelation 6, the day of the Lord does not begin until after the, the great tribulation, which, which starts after the midpoint, uh, that tribulation happens. Then we see the sun and moon star signs, which Joel tells us will occur right before the day of the Lord. That is next. That is announcing that the wrath of God is about to come upon the wicked in the midst of this persecution. Christians are saved through the rapture. On the same day that they are saved through the rapture, the wrath of God begins. People hide their faces in the rock saying, uh, uh, the wrath of God has come. And then, of course, that is expressed by the trumpets and bowls, which are just unambiguously the wrath of God on the wicked. So obviously I'm rambling a bit uh, and I did not mean to get into all that, but I do think it's important to understand the basics of the tribulation versus the great tribulation and what the day of the Lord is and the New Testament understanding of the day of the Lord. It really helps to get the true understanding of what's going on here, but I don't think it's necessary. I think you can still hold to, you know, your whatever view of the day of the Lord in order to understand the problems that we're about to get into. It is just really helpful if you have a grasp of that stuff, even though I didn't do that great of a job of explaining it. So let's look into this. So the first few places we see this lack of consensus among pre-tribbers is in the first uh, few verses here concerning which things are, are being referred to as the rapture and what is not the rapture. There's essentially three things here that need to be identified. The first is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that word there is parousia, concerning the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, 
That's another one that needs to be identified. What is the gathering together to him? Um, we ask you, brothers, not to quickly be shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or by spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the natural flow of that is that all three of those are references to the rapture. The idea that they believe that they were in the day of the Lord means that they missed the gathering together. The, the parousia there in the first verse, now concerning the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ, has for a long time never even been thought to be questioned because parousia is almost a technical term for the rapture. It is used in the first Thessalonians verse, which nobody uh, disagrees is about the rapture. Everybody says that's the rapture. It's parousia. Parousia means uh, uh, it's a, it's a more general term because it can mean the, the first event in the arrival or the presence is that's essentially what it literally means. And it was used in literature to mean the presence of a king. So you might say the king, the king is going to come to this area, our, our little village. And when he comes here, he's going to do all kinds of things. He's going to knight people. He's going to uh, be in meetings. He's going to do all this stuff. And then he's going to return. That whole visit of the king would be called his parousia. The king's visit. What will the king do during his visit? Well, he, he will arrive in his visit and then he he will do different things during his visit. And that was a nice king's visit. His parousia was very nice. All that to say that everything Paul is saying here is perfectly reasonable. He's saying now concerning the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, this general coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. There he goes into the specific part of the parousia that's in, that's in view here. That is the rapture. Now concerning the parousia and the first event of the parousia, the rapture, don't be a, a, a shaken or upset as to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. I'm going to say that we're going to go through some of the completely different opinions that they have, even in this first section, which it's interesting because we're going to see that they're trying to split this up into mean two things, at least the rapture and Armageddon are probably the best uh, examples or the day of the Lord. Just they want to focus in on the day of the Lord and pretend as though the rapture was never even spoken of. At least that's functionally what happens when they go through the rest of their commentary. But what I'm going to suggest to you is it doesn't even matter. It's almost as if they believe that by doing so, by splitting this up into two comings as they do in Matthew 24, that they believe it somehow solves the actual problem in this passage, which is that two events need to precede the day of the Lord. Doing that still has no bearing, no relevance whatsoever, no matter how, how much you claim that two things are in view in this passage. You still got to explain why two events are before the day of the Lord. So anyway, let's look at some of these examples of lack of consensus. And we'll start with this first idea that the, the, the rapture is being referred to by Paul when he says the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and are gathering together to him. John MacArthur is a, is a pre-tribulationalist that agrees that both the parousia and the gathering are a reference to the rapture. Uh, Renald Showers, who writes uh, pretty prolifically about pre-tribulationalism, also uh, says that they're both referring to the rapture. Craig Blazing, who is uh, one of the more preeminent scholars on pre-tribulationalism, he literally wrote the book for uh, Zondervan on it in the Three Views of the Rapture book, also believes that the rapture is in view in the parousia and the gathering. Then we get into, well, John Walver didn't exactly mention it, but, you know, based on this being essentially the consensus view since the beginning of pre-tribulationalism, he probably, and based on his commentary, even though he didn't actually mention it, I don't think he needed to mention it or thought that he needed to explain it. But yeah, he, he probably believes that Perusia and Gathering are the rapture. But then we get into some, some more of these modern guys. David Guzik takes the position that 
that Armageddon is in view in is in view with the gathering. He says the parousia is unambiguous because it's a technical term. It's really hard to get away from that being uh, the rapture. But he says the gathering together to him is the gathering together of the wicked, although they also sometimes believe that the gathering together is another rapture. They've got two raptures of the Old Testament uh, saints happening uh, as well. That's how they get around some other stuff, but that's not necessarily in view there. Interestingly, I saw a new one uh, the other day when I was reading this uh, book from Moody, which is sort of their statement on the rapture in the modern era. And, and the guy who wrote the chapter uh, on this, Nathan uh, Holstein, which is a professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, he takes a completely different view. He says that the parousia is Armageddon and the gathering is the rapture. And I'm telling you, I can't express how uh, about face that is. First, it makes Paul do an unambiguous, like, I'm going to talk about the Armageddon first and then the rapture second, a completely out of order thing. And he actually notes that. It's like, it is weird that Paul says this out of order. His reasoning is, is as you might expect, not all that uh, great. We can get into that in another time. My point here is just to say that there is a lack of consensus, even on a very simple and ultimately inconsequential uh, thing here at the beginning. And, and again, I can't stress the point enough that they're doing this to give the impression that the rest of what they're going to say makes sense that they can get people to believe that there's actually two things in view here. And so that explains some of the silliness, but it doesn't functionally explain anything, even if they split this up. And one of the more interesting things that happens uh, here is related to the people that claim that the apostasy, that is one of the events that happens before the day of the Lord, according to the Paul, is the rapture. It's convenient in one sense for them because it gets to, oh, that's that's the thing that happens before the day of the Lord. We're raptured. Everything's fine. Now, pre-trib is true. But it's like that puzzle piece I mentioned. Now, now you've essentially made Paul say here that don't be uh, don't be deceived for the rapture won't happen until the rapture happens. And and what what makes this theory so utterly bankrupt and what what makes me so frustrated with how people can't see the falseness of this is that I have yet to read a commentary for somebody that somebody that believes that the apostasy is the rapture has a commentary about what these parousia and gathering words mean because you understand what they have to do. They have to make both of those not be the rapture. Or they have to make, which which I've yet to see anybody do. They're either both the rapture or one is the rapture and one isn't. And just pick one, I guess, at random and come up with a random theory about why you think that. Uh, but to have them both not be the rapture or secondarily, Paul uh, said, hey, I'm about to talk about the rapture and then forgets to talk about the rapture. That's your other option. Or there is, of course, option three where you just don't address it. And this is probably the most frustrating part of this is that these scholars who are making this, this they've solved some problem in pre-tribulationalism, but don't answer some pretty glaring uh, uh, contradictions that come up as a result of it. Let's move on to apostasy here because it's an interesting example of this lack of consensus. Remember, the problem here is that it, that Paul says the apostasy uh, will occur before the day of the Lord. So here's a sampling of these same people of what they think the apostasy is. John MacArthur has a pretty novel interpretation here, and I have no idea uh, why he comes to this conclusion, uh, but he believes it is the abomination of desolation. Now, I, I, it's a pretty interesting interpretation. Basically, the idea is that he takes apostasy to mean not a religious departure, like you apostatize from Christianity, say, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore, or you apostatize from other some other faith or some other political thing. He just kind of takes it as a really bad uh, religious thing, more like an abomination. Just apostasy means a bad 
religious thing. And the worst religious thing he can think of is the abomination of desolation. Now I got to give him, I got to hand it to him a little bit because Paul does go into the abomination of desolation event after this. And I'll show you why with good reason. Uh, so he's kind of connecting it to that. Uh, but as far as I know, he's really the only one that uh, ha is taking that view, at least of the ones that I am sampling from. And I'm not uh, handpicking these people at all. These were just picked because uh, I considered them to be some of the authorities on it. I didn't go look for people with different views. These are just the ones that I picked. John Walford, he believes that the apostasy is uh, the religious or bad doctrine of today. In other words, to these days, the kids are teaching all the crazy things. That is the apostasy. Now, a lot of these people do mention John MacArthur's point was because it is the apostasy, it has to have been talked about before. It's something that the people would have known about. So that's one of his arguments for why he goes for the abomination of desolation. So yeah, he says, John Walbert says, it's just a bad, the bad doctrine of today. So before the rapture, before the day of the Lord happens, the world is going to have some really bad doctrine. That's essentially what John Walbert is saying. David Guzik, he, he really kind of waffles on this, and he says it could mean a general worldwide rebellion. So in this case, not the church, but just the, the world gets really bad and, 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 and weird. He says it could be that general worldwide rebellion from, I guess, just being good, or it could mean a specific leaving of the Christian faith. David Guzik seems to lean that way more than the other because he does give more information uh, supporting the idea that the apostasy is a specific leaving of the Christian faith. But but interestingly, he doesn't point to any other part of the Bible that says that. Obviously, in as a pre-rather in the book of um, uh, in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter twenty-four, and in fact all the all of the discourse passages, we see a specific rebellion right before the day of the Lord, uh, which is obviously probably the one Paul's talking about. But of course, a pre-tripper can't see anything in Matthew twenty-four; it's not technically allowed uh, in in some senses. In anyway, so yeah, he believes that it could be a general worldwide rebellion or a specific leaving of the Christian faith. So I actually think that David Guzik is more correct, at least if he, if he emphasizes that second possible explanation. Craig Blazing, the guy who wrote The Preacher of Rapture, is one of my favorites. He believes that the apostasy is unknowable. What he believes is that because of the, the apostasy, uh, it's something that Paul was referring to uh, to before, right? He's something that he has talked to them about before. He believes that it's in the lost letter of, of Thessalonians that Paul talked about this uh, and that Paul just assumed that they knew what he was talking about. But unfortunately, since that letter never survived, we'll never know what the apostasy he was talking about actually was. <clears throat> he actually says the same thing about the restrainer uh, later on. So that's fairly convenient. And then Thomas Ice and, and Nathan Holstein, although Nathan Holstein of Dallas is a little less uh, uh, committal of this, but Thomas Ice is certainly the, the face of the idea that, uh, that, that it means a physical departure. That is to say that the apostasy means the rapture. The rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. That's the Thomas Ice view. And his argument really is based around the fact that in English, the word apostasy can be departure. That is to say, because it's referring to a departure of the religious faith. You know, you, you departed from Christianity, you departed from uh, the Democratic Party. You, but he, because certain Bible versions have used the word depart, in his mind, it can mean a physical departure. It can mean like, you know, kind of like the rapture. That's what it could mean. 
despite the fact that and Alan Kirshner is probably one of the best proponents of this uh, and has has cornered Thomas Eisen in debate to get him to admit that in the whole of Koinia Greek, that is to say every every uh, instance of Greek that we have uh, of this type of Greek, it's just it's just never means that it doesn't mean that he's claiming that the word means something that he wants it to mean, but has no proof whatsoever that it actually can mean that. Reynold Showers, who's the last one I have on my list here, he, he says it's a religious departure. He's very general about it. It doesn't, doesn't go into a lot of details about what specifically. I also want to mention that I find more often than not, pre-trib commentators are specifically outspoken against the uh, apostasy means the rapture view. I, I've seen, uh, I know John Walvert is, is specifically anti that view. Um, and I've seen David Guzik. Well, I remember hearing this in a David Guzik audio, and I've been looking for the right audio and can't find it because I'd like to use it in the movie. But he does a commentary on this when he talks about the apostasy means the rapture idea. And he says, oh, I wish that were true. <laughs> I wish I could believe it. I really do. I want it to be true. It would solve a lot of things. But my friends, it's just not true because of X, Y, and Z. Next, we need to talk about one of the most interesting things about this passage, at least the way that the pre-trib world deals with this next part uh, is fascinating to me, and I hope it will be to you, and that is the little word protos. Protos, which means first or before, is the elephant in the room. It's the reason why this passage is uh, pre-trib kryptonite. It's the bane of pre-tribulationalists because of protos. Paul says these two little things the apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist need to happen protos, before uh, the day of the Lord. Now, in the popular level, that is with your, your average pastor or, or somebody that, that's not a scholar and not subject to peer review, they will simply not address this, but they will say the following. And what I'm about to say to me is like a smoke and mirrors, like sleight of hand. It is deceptive. And I've yet to see a popular level guy who's trying to explain this verse to his con congregation, not do some variation of this that I'm about to do. They will say this. This is almost a conclusion. This is how they say, hey, let's not worry about this passage because. So what Paul is really trying to say here, people, is that, you know, you haven't missed the rapture. You're not in the day of the Lord. And the reason that you know that you're not in the day of the Lord is because you don't see the apostasy, do you? You don't see the Antichrist, do you? Well, there you go. You're not in the day of the Lord. Case closed. This isn't a problem for pre-tribbers. I don't know why people say that. So if you didn't notice, what he's essentially saying is that Paul said that those two things will happen during the day of the Lord, not before the day of the Lord, not protos, not first, but during. The obvious follow-up to that is, hey, you just solved this problem by changing one word and exchanging it for another word. That's, that's great. Um, what is your argumentation for that? Uh, why do you feel justified in, in making such a bold change? And as I said, in the popular world, there just is no explanation. Uh, he says this, uh, this spiel about how Paul really meant uh, this. Everybody goes home happy, and that's the end of that. Now, with the scholars, they will also do that occasionally. They just will not reference it. But there have been some occasions recently where we can actually point to and see what the kind of explanations they are giving for this. And here are a few examples. I should mention that this is pretty rare. Weirdly enough, every single commentary I've ever read 
puts some kind of conditional or during view on this. It's really the only way for them to get around Second Thessalonians is to uh, briefly or, or, or specifically say that Paul doesn't really mean first, he means during. But actual explanations of that are, are as rare as rubies. To, and these are the only two I know of. I'm sure there are others. Uh, but interestingly, these are both brand new books, basically, about pre-tribulationalism in the scholarly world that have dealt with it to some degree. And let's just say I'm not terribly uh, impressed by it. So let's first start off with uh, Craig Blazing. And this is in his book, The Three Views of the Rapture, in his uh, point on pre-tribulationalism. He says of this, when the whatever the apostasy refers to, the activity of the man of lawlessness presented here actually belongs to the integrated day of the Lord slash time of the end pattern taught by the Lord and recalled by Paul, not something that precedes it. So that's actually his main argument in case you missed it. And you probably did miss it unless you know what Craig Blazing means by the integrated day of the Lord slash time of the end pattern taught by the Lord. He calls it something like the Danielic cycle. Basically, he says that there's this pattern in Daniel uh, that is chronology about the Antichrist and his rise to power and how that goes in with the abomination of desolation. And that basically anytime anybody in the New Testament, Testament mentions anything about the day of the Lord, you need to completely input this essentially made up, made up pattern into the New Testament context. And you can read all kinds of things into it as long as you are willing to do that. And he basically just says, because of that sort of theory I have, I get to disregard the fact that uh, something precedes it. He doesn't explain it. He just says because of his theory, it solves it. We're not even really told why, but I love the next part. He says, uh, actually belongs to the integrated day of the Lord slash time of the end pattern taught by the Lord and recalled by Paul, not something that precedes it. The coming of the day of the Lord in both the Olivet Discourse and 1 Thessalonians 5 is without signs, without warning. It comes suddenly and expectedly as a surprise. No one knows when it is com coming. He goes on. He's basically saying a circular reasoning argument. He's saying, hey, look, we believe that imminence is true. That is that there are no signs that precede it. If we take this at face value, it is saying that signs are preceding it. Therefore, my argument is that I believe pre-tribulationalism. But what is the most interesting thing is that he doesn't even address protos, the fact the whole reason that this needs to happen, this discussion needs to happen. Now, in, in fairness, Craig Blazing does spend a lot of time talking about the this, which is that Paul, uh, that the, the translators have to put some things in italics right here. Uh, and so in, in a sense, the translators have to make up a little bit of what Paul was saying here because of this uh, this missing piece. But it's only missing, uh, it, it's a very common thing that, that happens in the New Testament. And it, it seems that all the translators have it right. And the reason they have it right is thankfully because of the word protos. So we know these events must happen before. So if you're going to make this argument that Craig Blazing does, you don't do it by saying, oh, remember, remember that theory I had about Daniel? That somehow solves this. You need to say, hey, protos shouldn't be protos because uh, of some other argument, which you, which I'm reading this thinking he's going to talk about protos. He's going to talk about protos because he's getting into this minutia about the Greek and stuff. I'm like, here we go. Here we go. And then we get, hey, eminence uh, is true. So this can't be true. It, 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 it's a little bit disappointing. The other guy who has offered an explanation for this is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary named Nathan Holstein, professor of eschatology among 
other things, he offers something that seems like it's getting to the heart of the matter. He's got a lot of technical jargon here that really I was completely confused by. I'm, I'm about to read this and you're going to go to sleep and you're going to say, oh, that's too technical for me. Uh, maybe this is actually over my head. Uh, but I want you to read uh, the response. Uh, I sent this to Alan Kirshner because I was honestly like, you know, I feel like I can follow this stuff most of the time, but I can't, I can't even, I can't even follow this. Maybe it's, uh, it's over my head. Anyway, this is what he says. In order to follow the flow of Paul's argument, we are going to need to fill in the blank of the missing apodosis and the then part of the conditional statement. Most commentators agree that the best way to do this is to connect the missing apodosis to the previous context. Likewise, uh, most familiar translations of the Bible in English follow this pattern, connecting the apodosis to the previous statement in verse 2 that the day of the Lord has come. This is where the fun begins. The verb that most commentators look for to uh, guide the filling in of the missing apodosis, anestiken, the per is in the perfect tense. This is why most translations use a phrase something like shaken from your composure or disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The words has come in this phrase represent the translator's choice in the rendering of the word esketen, but what then is the opposite of has come? It would seem that this meaning is the one we seek when we fill in the missing apodosis. Putting this back into the flow of Paul's thought, here is a paraphrase clarifying the meaning we find in Paul's text. Quote, I urge you not to be shaken or disturbed by any message to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Do not be deceived in that way, for I tell you that the day of the Lord has not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Many commentators and translators subtly shift the tense of the supplied verb when they fill in the missing apodosis. The NASB, for example, supplies the phrase, it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless... The choice, it seems to me, is not driven by the text or structure of the text. It is driven by another unidentified factor. My conviction is that we ought to make exegetical choices that are driven first by the text considered in its grammatical, literary, historical context. When we do that in this passage, it seems reasonable that our preference in filling in the missing apodosis will be the day of the Lord has not come. What is the point? What is the point? Simply this. Second Thessalonians does not say that the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness precede the day of the Lord. The text itself is ambiguous on this point. It does not say whether these two events precede the day of the Lord or whether these two events form the initial stage of the day of the Lord. What the text says is this, you can know that you are not in the day of the Lord unless you have seen the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. The day of the Lord will not have come unless you see the apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist. So I was confused by this for a lot of reasons. Uh, the first is that he's talking about the day of the Lord has come way up there in the first part of this verse. Uh, he's not even addressing, again, the protos part of this. He is he's drawing his reader's attention to this missing uh, part of the text and that we need to fill it out. But again, he doesn't even talk about protos. But what it does do is talk about the perfect tense of the verb. Now, I've heard in a million different contexts that you can't just say uh, the perfect tense of Greek to describe the meaning because it, it's always about context. So I was a little dubious when he brought up the perfect tense or the tense of a Greek verb. But so, but that seems to be his reasoning. But his whole line of argumentation seemed to not get there until he gets to the very end when he said, hey, he means unless and not before. It was like, I guess I'm missing something. So I wrote Alan, and this is what Alan had to say. He, he had two responses. The first one was this. 
He said it's classic smoke and mirrors. First, he talks about the verb being in the perfect tense, which is completely irrelevant. Further, he does not even know what that means in Greek. See here, and he uh, points to an article on his website, uh, a primer on the semantics of the Koine Greek tense form. Second, the uh, apodosis is exactly what Paul states in the immediate statement. It's as if his M.O. is to type enough words so that the reader thinks he's saying something of value. He actually does not make any argument. At the end, he just sort of throws out the conditional assertion, that is the unless instead of before. He throws out the conditional assertion, hoping that his readers will take his word for it. Honestly, you should be confused by his discussion because it's incoherent. Uh, P.S. Notice he never explains why Protos is in the passage, at least as I recall from reading his chapter a few years ago. I mentioned to Alan that it seemed kind of odd that this guy was making this argument because he also, in this same commentary, promotes, well, he sort of waffles back and forth on the apostasy is the rapture idea. Uh, he's, he's very non-committal. He's like, you know, I think it's a, a really good idea. We should do it. Uh, but he doesn't really commit to it. But what's interesting is that that's the reason you would go with the apostasy is the rapture is because you believe that you can't get around the protos means first. That's why the apostasy means the rapture is an attractive view is because you don't have to get around this. You don't have to make this argument. You say, oh, well, the rapture comes before the day of the Lord. Problem solved. But he's arguing, arguing both sides. Uh, Alan says it's like he's throwing parts of every type of a pre-trib argument and hoping it sticks. Contradictory arguments as well. At the end of the day, he can't articulate a definitive position on 2 Thessalonians 2. If you think the apostasia is the rapture, but it could be the conditional argument, then that person cannot articulate the meaning of the message of one of Paul's letters. This podcast is going a little long here, but there was one other aspect of this I did want to hit. And that is uh, when Paul talks about the revealing of the Antichrist. And this is interesting because uh, the revealing of the Antichrist, I think, is generalized a lot. I rarely see pre-trib commentators really spend much time on this at all. If they do, they kind of disconnect it from any of the previous things. They feel once they get to this point in the passage that they can just begin a normal commentary. So Paul talks about the abomination of desolation. So they can go into, you know, more familiar territory. The abomination of desolation and Daniel, and they can get into, you know, what they would say about the abomination of desolation and not be wrong. They're not they're not attributing this in most commentaries or, or, or messages that I'm hearing uh, preached in front of churches to this being another thing that needs to happen before the day of the Lord. Uh, because it's actually incredibly damning if you say that the revealing of the Antichrist must happen first. Now, if you take the view that this just means the revealing of the Antichrist, meaning uh, that maybe it's his rise to power or something, uh, but unfortunately it seems very focused in on the idea that this is talking about the abomination of desolation. Let me read it again. And, and Paul spends, what, an entire verse on the abomination of desolation. I would admit that he doesn't connect it as strongly as I would like, but if I were to tell you that this revealing of the Antichrist was the revealing that happens at that midpoint when he uh, takes off the mask, as it were, and says, hey, I uh, want to be worshipped as God in the temple, uh, worship me or die. Is that the revealing that Paul has in mind here? So uh, it says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Uh, so it, it could definitely, uh, you could definitely be forgiven uh, for believing that Paul has in mind with the revealing of the Antichrist to be specifically 
the abomination of desolation. And I would say, obviously, when you connect this passage to Matthew 24, it, it's abundantly clear that's what he's talking about, because that's the order of events in Matthew 24. We have uh, the, the revealing of the Antichrist, that is to say, the abomination of desolation, which kicks off, of course, what? The great tribulation, the great persecution, the time of trouble that's unlike any other time, a persecution against what? Against Christians, which is not what? It's not the day of the Lord. It's not the wrath of God. That is ridiculous. It is a persecution of Christians. Uh, and that persecution is cut short by what? What saves us? Well, I'll tell you what saves us. It's the rapture. And then the rapture, of course, happens in the day of the Lord begins once we are out of the way at some unknown point after the midpoint. Pre-rathers make no distinction of when people say three quarters. We don't know. It could be uh, weeks. It could be months. It could be whatever. Uh, we know that the day of the Lord at least lasts five months because I believe it's the fifth trumpet last five months. So we know the day of the Lord is at least that long, but really there's no there's no time frame on, on how long it is. No man knows the day or the hour of the rapture, uh, but we will we do know that we will be raptured out of the midst of the great tribulation, not the pre-trib or post-trib quote-unquote tribulation. Uh, that is to say they believe the seven, well, they don't believe, they just call it a seven-year tribulation for some reason. Anyway, I got a little bit uh, long-winded and a little rambly. Uh, God bless you for sticking around if you did. Check out the website, uh, prewrathmovie.com. Go to my website for the podcast, BibleProphecyTalk.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to see you next week. See you later.